Hello, this is Jane Sigford bringing you Views and Voice Above the Noise, a podcast hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Today's interview is with Valerie Dozland, a lobbyist for Ewald Consulting. Valerie is the lobbyist for MASA and other organizations. Most people do not really know what it is that lobbyists do. It is important, I think, to understand how Valerie's efforts and the efforts of others help make change happen. Lobbying is a part of the politics of a democracy. Robert Kennedy Jr. said democracy is messy and it's hard. Archibald McLeish, a poet, playwright, lawyer, and statesman said, democracy is never a thing done. Democracy is always something that a nation must be doing. What is necessary now is one thing and one thing only, that democracy become again democracy in action, not democracy accomplished and piled up in goods and gold. Lobbying is one facet of that democracy in action. Several themes emerged from my conversation with Valerie. She talked about the importance of relationships, how one can exert influence and make changes even though it may take time and a lot of effort, and the results of those influences may not be obvious immediately, but the political process does allow us to make change. Another quote here from a Barack Obama says it better. Change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. Let's hear how Valerie became a lobbyist. She has a very interesting career path. I wanted to be a lawyer when I was in high school and college. And I had no idea that there was even such a thing as lobbyists. And I certainly did not have that as an aspiration for my job. I landed into lobbying fairly serendipitously. And I will have to say that each job that brought me closer to being a lobbyist was also fairly serendipitous. I went to college at the University of Minnesota and I got a four-year degree, liberal arts degree in history, with a concentration in English history because I found it interesting. Much to my dad's dismay, he wondered what I was going to do with that. And I said, I don't know, I'm going to law school. It doesn't matter. And it's interesting. So. I graduated from college. My twin and I are the youngest of eight kids. And when I was done with college, I wanted to move away from my family, try to grow up a little bit on my own without my twin with me and without my older siblings. And so I moved to Washington, D.C. because I was interested by that point in government and politics, mostly because of my parents, and I'll explain that later. I moved out to Washington, D.C., and this was back before we had the internet or Indeed or LinkedIn. I needed a job, and I had a four-year college degree and a lot of administrative office skills because that's the work I did when I was in college. I hunted the want ads in the newspaper and circled them and sent in my resumes on a, that I probably typed on a typewriter it was so far so long ago. I happened to see a job notice for a position at the National Conference of State Legislatures, which is the lobbying arm in DC for state governments. I mailed in my application or maybe I dropped it off at that point because I was living there and they called me for an interview. So here's serendipitous act number one. It was very hot in August in Washington, D.C., heat unlike anything this Midwesterner has ever experienced. And that interview was late in the day. I was dressed as a young college graduate would be, wearing a very hot, uncomfortable suit and nylons and pumps and the whole nine yards. And by the time I had that interview at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I did not care 
what happened to the job. Like, I just wanted to go home and get out of that suit and get cool. Lo and behold, they offered me the job the next day. That job was my first interaction with lobbyists because I became the assistant to three of the lobbyists at the National Conference of State Legislatures who covered international trade, health and human services, and public safety. I got a bird's eye view of what lobbying is, at least for that organization in D.C. But in addition, this is where my interest in state government happened, is those lobbyists also worked really closely with members from state legislatures all around the state who were on committees that had jurisdiction over the issues they followed. I met people from all over the country who were interested in health care. I met legislators from all over the country who, were, who cared about economic development and trade. That got me interested in what state government was doing. I worked at NCSL for a few years, and then I worked at a few other jobs in D.C. working for organizations for lobbyists doing government relations. So most of what I did was supporting the work they did. So I did legislative bill tracking, communications. This was all obviously before computers really took off and social media took off. So, so I just supported the work that they did. Each job I worked at, I got more interactions with state government. When I moved back to Minnesota, I knew I wanted to work in the state legislature, but I didn't really know how to get my foot in the door. I didn't have a master's degree, so I knew working in nonpartisan research wasn't a spot for me. But I knew some legislators from my work at NCSL. And so I reached out to them, and they said, oh, well, it's an election year. You should do some campaign work, become a field organizer. I didn't really know what that meant. I figured I could probably learn. And I got interviewed, and they hired me. And so I worked on some campaigns in the 96th election. I had no idea what any of these keywords they talked about meant, like door knocking. And when they explained what door knocking was, I thought, what? You want me to go talk to strangers about politics? I did. That year was a good year for the candidates I worked for. All three won. However, there weren't a lot of jobs to be held because the majority that year who I had worked for had barely kept the majority. But luckily for me, I kind of put two and two together and knew one of the individuals who was in leadership kept showing up on my, were helping my candidates. And so I just made sure that that individual always saw me working for those candidates. I don't think that's why I ultimately got my job at the legislature, but it certainly helped my resume kind of rise to the surface a little bit. So that's serendipitous act number two. So I was hired to work for the Minnesota House and I worked there for nine years and I was responsible for following E-12 education issues for one of the caucuses. I was assigned it, and I didn't know anything about education other than my own personal experiences. I had knowledge of state government and how the legislative process worked from my time working in Washington, D.C., but there's nothing like actually working in the midst of it to really understand. So I did that for nine years, and in that job, I provided analysis and summaries and research for members for one of the caucuses in the areas of early childhood and K-12 education. And I served basically as the eyes and ears for people on what was happening on those issues throughout the legislative process. I did that for nine years. I loved my job. I loved the work I got to do. I also did in between a lot of campaign work. I took leaves of absences to do political work, and then I'd come back and work at the legislature. And it was fascinating. I, I like talking to people. I like meeting people. I like doing good work. And it was really in that job that I really, really understood the, started to understand the role that the state legislature plays on our everyday lives. 
I worked there for nine years and in the same position for the most part. It just got to be a point in my life where I needed to have some more challenges and more opportunity to grow and develop. But I was getting burnt out on politics and the legislature. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I just did a lot of networking and informational interviews. And eventually I came around to the fact that that's where my skill set is best suited is in lobbying. I applied for different jobs. They just didn't come come to fruition, which was completely fine. One of the individuals who works at the fir- worked at the firm I worked at now, work at now, Ewald Consulting, had said to me, Valerie, you really need to become a lobbyist. You'd be good at your job. You know the issues. And I said, that's great. You have education clients. Why don't you hire me? And he said, I will when I can. So that's serendipitous act number three. About a year later, he called me and said, I'm able to hire another lobbyist. I'd like to hire you. A lot of it's serendipitous, but also it's putting myself in the right place at the right time, working hard, being able to be an independent learner and self-sufficient and a hard worker. And so he hired me, and I've been at Ewald Consulting since 2005. I didn't mean to get to this point, but this is where I ended up. But it's all kind of logical as to how I got to this point. I didn't want to be a lobbyist. I wanted to be a lawyer. But quickly after I moved to Washington, D.C., I learned that that was not a profession for me. I didn't think I would be happy doing that. From a very young age, my parents were always talking about politics, were always involved in political things. My uncle was a former state senator. Mom was a save the world social worker. Probably the biggest impact for me was my, I had a twin sister who, when we were born, she couldn't breathe right away and she was had cerebral palsy and developmental delays. And my mom had to become a big advocate for her. And so kind of through all of those experiences, I learned if you want to accomplish something to improve people's lives, you have to be the one to do it. You can't say to people, oh, why don't you go do that? I just always, through what I saw in my own family and learned from my parents, and my dad loves to talk about, loved to talk about politics and argue about politics. I learned how to debate, not professional debate, but I learned how to debate and make my point, do research to understand what I'm trying to say and navigate with those discussions. Without knowing it, I was led in that, the direction where I am now. As an aside observation, it appears that for most of the people I've interviewed, they have landed in a career that was not their original idea, but because of opportunities that presented themselves and their being willing to take advantage of such opportunities, the people have landed in a career that has provided satisfaction and the opportunity to make a difference. What does a contract lobbyist do? I am what's called a contract lobbyist, and I work for a firm, but there are contract lobbyists that work independently. I would not like that. I really like the firm I work at, Ewald Consulting. I love working with a team of other lobbyists, and I like working in a bigger organization. Ewald Consulting does other work as well as lobbying. They do association management, so I have, and I just like being part of a team. I have worked for a number of different clients. Lobbyists tend to focus on issue areas because that's how you can be successful. It's also hard to be in a lot of different committees at the same time. I represent MASA. I also work with the intermediate school districts. I work with the community ed association, among others. You work for several organizations, but what do the organizations expect you to accomplish? The role of the lobbyist really depends on what the client needs. There are some clients that all they want you to do is monitor, pay attention to what's happening in the legislature, provide them updates, specifically watch for specific issues and let them know what's happening. Most of the work that I do 
is for clients who want to be fully engaged in the process. It might be on just one specific issue. They want me to work with them to help them advance that issue. Most of my clients, however, are like the work that I do with MASA. They have a platform with a number of issues that they want to advance, and I work with them to advance that. What does that mean? In that role, I help serve as the eyes and ears of what's going on in the legislative process for the members and for the executive director, like much like I did in my other job. Um, and I should add, when I became a lobbyist, I thought I knew what a lobbyist did. No. I only saw a very small part of what a lobbyist did as a staffer at the legislature. For one thing, I only saw what they did in the House. It's all replicated in the Senate. I don't see that, in among many other things. I serve as the eyes and ears for the client. In some cases, like MASA, Gary Amoroso is there as much as possible, but for regional meetings and other association business. Other clients don't, their executive director doesn't go to the Capitol at all, and I do that all of that for them. But in the, I'll just use MASA as an example. So I work really closely with the executive director. I serve as the eyes and ears, and I try to keep the executive director in the loop, especially if Gary has to be gone. I pay attention to all of the different bill introductions, you know, what's happening in committee, what bills are being introduced, what are the big issues that are impacting the decisions that the legislature makes. So what does the, what's the political climate? Who's in the majority? How does that impact the priorities that we want to advocate for? Who's in the governor's office and how does that impact the outcome of the priorities we care about? What does the budget forecast look like? What's happening with the budget and spending obligations? What, what kind of geographic things are at play that impact the decisions? And what are all the other issues that are impacting the decisions? Not just the budget, do we have a surplus, do we have a deficit, but what are all the other big issues that are possible sticking points? So for instance, this year, a big sticking point was what to do about the health care provider tax. That had a great impact on the legislature's ability and the governor's ability to come together on what to do about other investments and spending. I work hard to understand the context of all of those things. And then I work with the association to develop the legislative platform and MASA has a pretty defined process that they use, but I also provide, try to provide the context of all those things that I know at that point, what's happening to help craft a platform that when we come to the Capitol, they're going to take seriously. And I work with Gary to take that platform and help advance it at the legislature, whether it's through individually, I work with legislators and staff to get a bill drafted and introduced, or how do we work together as partners with all of the other different education organizations. So a really good example on that would be, it doesn't make sense to have five bills introduced to increase the formula by 3%. How can we all work together to have one bill and support that one bill? For MESA, I work with Gary and I do a lot of the legwork about making sure those meetings are getting scheduled, but I go to meetings with Gary, and Gary and I both advocate, Gary being the main advocate. But in Gary's absence, he attends all of the legislative meetings that we have one-on-one -on -one with legislators, but sometimes there might need to be a conversation in the hallway with a legislator or outside the House or Senate chamber. If Gary's has other obligations, I will do those things. We, we figure it out and work it out together. But in many cases with my clients, I do a lot of that on my own. I always like to bring my clients to legislative meetings. I don't like to do those things on their own. You know, I'm the, 
I'm knowledgeable about the legislative process and I work hard to understand way, the best way to impact that process, but I am not as knowledgeable about the issues. So I rely on my clients to really talk about the issues and, and put it in a way to the legislators that they can understand the impact in their community. I know enough about the issues to talk with legislators about it, but the selling point really is done by the individual client. Gary and I will bring legislators or superintendents to meet with individual legislators if we feel that they need that kind of extra push to hear what's happening locally. What does a lobbyist do when the legislature is not in session? Right now I'm busy kind of wrapping up with my clients about what happened. So I attend a lot of board meetings and legislative committee meetings for associations and provide updates, whether it's uh, I provide written updates as well as presentations to boards and et cetera. Now is a really good time to take stock of, okay, what happened? What happened that we didn't want to have happen? What didn't happen that we wanted to have happen? And what issues came up that while we may have opposed but and they didn't go anywhere, what are the things that we need to be working on going into next session? What items on our platform that we didn't get any traction on? During this time, she also does research and homework for future sessions. It depends. If it's the, a legislative platform that we're drafting and there's new issues, I want to try to get up as up to speed as possible on what those issues are. I under, try to understand what the statute says. What kind of data do we have to back up our arguments? What are really good stories that we can share with legislators to, to provide a personal face to the issue? Now, in this case, with looking back to what happened or what didn't happen, I try to recall to the best that I can. Sometimes it's just, you know, brief conversations about, so what were the arguments for? What were the arguments against? What do I need to put in place to counter those arguments or support the arguments? Who in the association has connections with key policymakers that we could start meeting with them over the interim? What kind of data do we need that we didn't have at the time? Now we have a little bit more time to collect data. What do you see as one of the most successful accomplishments of the last session? Education funding was the biggest priority, and that being the per-pupil formula. It was, obviously they didn't pass the three and three that was on many platforms, including MASAs, but it was nice to see that a lot of people worked really hard to get it as high as possible in the legislature, among all the education organizations, and would have preferred three, but I'm really glad it ended up at two and a half percent considering what it could have been. What continues to be ongoing issues? Until the formula keeps up with inflation, until we get caught up on special ed funding, we will always be making the case that schools need more funding because costs continue to grow. People want pay increases and the cost of insurance is going up, so the, the demands that school districts face are continue to grow, so we will always be advocating for that. One of the recurring issues in our state is how to close the racial achievement gap. Education is a big ticket item, we know, for the state, and legislators are always trying to understand what will make a difference and how money that is allocated is being used effectively. This achievement gap is a very complex issue because we know that poverty is a large contributor to that gap, and schools really have little influence over changing that. How do we work together with legislators to address this complicated, powerful issue? Do they believe that schools are solely responsible to close that gap? 
I don't think that is any one person's job. The most effective way to do that is to have legislators have local relationships locally with their school districts. So they they go on tours of their school district. They attend board meetings. The superintendents uh, reach out to them regularly. When legislators have a more personal connection and context, that helps form their opinion or form their knowledge base of what is actually happening. And they understand, oh, that's right. I know that this school district, these are the measures the school district has put in place to try to close the achievement gap. What's not working about that? What's working about it? What are the things the legislature can do to impact that? When they don't hear from their communities, they assume nothing is happening. What's the current thinking in the legislature about school safety and mental health funding and policy changes? There is potentially some additional money, one-time money for school districts to address school safety, but there's some statute changes that could happen in school safety to to help school districts address school safety, like how can they use long-term facility maintenance revenue, in addition to just ongoing funding for safe schools revenue, whether it's aid or levy. But there's policy changes that could be made. There's a, a bill I know a group of superintendents from the South Metro area have been trying to advance on fire drills, allowing a little more flexibility on fire drills because right now they have to be done with the students. They have to be in the classroom, and it's a lockdown drill. Well, that's not necessarily appropriate anymore for what we see school districts are facing around the state with, unfortunate, the mass shootings that have been happening. We can't get that passed. Is a casualty of the process. This year, a lot of things, some good policy, some bad policy didn't make it because of the they didn't reach an agreement by the end of session. And ultimately, a lot of that policy just fell off the table because they needed to get their bill done. Both the House and the governor and the Senate, the Senate was a much smaller amount because of their budget target, and it was only one time. But both the legislature and the governor had funding proposals to increase the safe schools revenue. The biggest challenge with that is it, it has to be ongoing and it has to be significant enough to be able to pay for the ongoing costs associated with salary and benefits for those employees. There was progress that was in, in several bills included those proposals. The potential for one-time money was passed. The bill included a provision that says if we have a budget surplus of a certain amount, X dollars will go to school districts in one-time aid for school safety. But they won't know until October if they receive it. Do you have a favorite piece of legislation that you were a part of? I have a few. So a long time ago, I worked for another client that we no longer represent, but I was one of the group of lobbyists that worked on the Freedom to Breathe law. That banned smoking from basically indoor bars and restaurants at the time. I had a personal connection. My mother died from asthma and emphysema, COPD. So I feel very proud of that. I also worked on legislation a few years ago to provide some funding for the intermediates to do some innovative mental health programming in their level four programs. It was a f- almost a $5 million grant for the four intermediates and a service cooperative. And they could work with a mental health provider to develop a model and it looked different in all for the intermediates and in the service cooperative. That model, it would have been nice to have gotten more money so that could be statewide. That decision was beyond me and beyond the intermediates who were advocating for it. Every school district that has a level four program should get that funding. 
Here's another bill that she's proud of working on. It was a really small bill at the time, and I didn't fully realize how much it opened the door for a lot of people, and it really hit home this last year. And again, it was a bill for the intermediates. It was a bill that amended the PSEO statutes to allow, it allowed those students to take remedial courses and get PSEO credit for it. Now there's this whole model that has developed all around the state, but it has to be tied to a program and it has to be approved. Intermediate 287 has this program called Gateway to College. It's with Hennepin Tech and it allows them to get PSEO credit for remedial courses, but they then also go on and take additional courses through this Hennepin Tech Gateway to College model. Author of that bill a few years ago was Representative Jim Dabney, who's now the chair of the Finance Committee. He held a hearing and wanted to have some students come that benefited from that law change. 287 had a student come and speak about the impact that this program had on the student's life. And it was really incredible to see that a little teeny piece of legislation, that the trajectory it's created, because it's school districts around the state are creating these models, and to hear from the student about the impact that it had on the student's life. One of the themes that is an underpinning of Valerie's work is that politics and democracy are based on relationships and dialogue. During the interim when the legislature is not in session, Valerie focuses on interacting with a variety of people and building those relationships. But I also work to maintain my relationships with legislators. So over the course of the interim, I'll attend political fundraising events. At my firm has a PAC a political action committee, and we make contributions. Some of the organizations I work for have political action committees, so I work with their executive directors or the chairs of the legislative committees, depending on how that's set up, you know, about what fundraisers they should go to, because you could go to a lot of fundraisers. You can't possibly have enough money to attend all the fundraisers there are. But that's a real reality of of our system. Some people would refer to it as pay-to-play. I don't believe it's a pay-to-play. I have access with legislators whether or not I my firm gives contributions, but it's another opportunity to have a touch point with a member. And let's face it, it costs money to run elections. They have to print their campaign literature and pay for their websites and pay for lawn signs, and it's just part of the process. But I don't ever feel it's, uh, I haven't had a door open to me because I haven't contributed to a campaign. Not only does Valerie develop relationship with legislators, but she hopes that superintendents will do the same. And here are some ideas. I would just emphasize that it's more than getting in touch. It's getting in touch and maintaining an ongoing relationship throughout the year. It is and can seem like it may not have a lot of impact, but it does. So it, and it means more than just coming to the Capitol and having a meeting with the legislators. Grassroots advocacy is best when it's consistent and repetitive. It tells the legislators that their communities are paying attention, but it also provides opportunities for the legislators to learn about what's actually happening. I know that they appreciate it. I've heard from a senator recently who gets regular touch points from their school district superintendent. It's, you know, after the election, they send a note saying, congratulations on your election. I look forward to working with you. It's session starts. There's district has a legislative breakfast where the board members and the superintendents and exec, administrative staff 
and teachers can hear from legislators about what's happening in session and the legislators hear from the district about their policy priorities. When the governor's budget comes out, provide feedback to the legislators about the impact the governor's budget has on that their district. Same for when the House and Senate do that. Every time there's an opportunity to provide feedback, I would hope that that happens on a regular basis. When session is over, thank them for what happened. Thank them for the outcome, even though you may not be completely happy with it. And then I think when you have that ongoing relationship and connection, A, the legislators, I think, are more understanding if you're frustrated with what's happening because they've heard from you throughout, not just when things are when you're calling to oppose something. But I also think that everyone has the most information as possible than just with a small one visit here and there. Numerous legislators have been on their local legislative action committee or on an advisory council in their district. The other point I would like to make too is sometimes it's easy to think, well, I've talked to them. I'm not going to change their mind. You never know. I've had experiences where I have had worked on issues and I'm We've met over and over again with the legislator, even though we know that they do not agree. It was on early childhood. They did not agree that the state should be investing in this. And we just kept coming back and coming back because it's they are elected to serve their community and they're appointed to committees. It's their obligation, their job to know what the issues are. So it's our job to educate them. And we just kept coming back. And I would think it was probably about five or six years we would just come back every year. And finally, we came back with just the right kind of data that that legislator said, maybe I should rethink my views. And that wouldn't have happened if after the third meeting we said, we're never changing their mind. Minnesota is unique in the nation right now because we are the only divided legislature. We have a Senate who is Republican and the House is Democrat. Have you ever worked in that situation before? Nope, we've had that before. The opposite, though. We've had the Senate Democrat and the House Republican. The scenario where I have not yet worked in is where the entire government is controlled by Republican majorities. So there's been a Democratic majority in all three. There's been a Senate Democrats, House Republican, Republican governor. There's been a Democrat governor and two Republican majorities. But I've never had a full Republican majority. I actually think divided government works better. People have to work a lot harder to make their case. If there's opposition, it's to issues, no matter, regardless of the merits. Some people might argue about the merits, but you have more opportunity to influence the outcome versus when there's total control by one party. So democracy is messy. But that's it is okay. messy. People always talk about we need to make our education funding system more understandable. $18 billion. Why should 18, spending $18 billion be easy math? Like government. I think government is messy. It can be challenging to navigate, but it's not impossible. And it takes time. We could add to Robert Kennedy's quote, democracy is messy, it's hard work, and it takes time. Valerie's hopeful philosophy of lobbying sounds like a good philosophy of life as well. I often will share with folks that I tend to be, your personality has to be such that you tend to be hopeful. Until it's finally over is usually when I lose hope. Um, But I think you always have to approach it 
in that you might not have gotten accomplished what you've wanted accomplished today. But that doesn't mean you can't get it accomplished in the future. I've worked on issues that have taken several years to pass. I've also worked on issues sometimes that don't take any time to pass or, or things don't get accomplished because of something completely out of your control you should still come back and try. I mean, obviously you have to balance some things, political realities, but, and you also never know what is going to influence a legislator's decision. I eventually got something passed because we learned that one of the employees of a district was related to the chair of a committee. And that got us our foot in the door. We didn't get it passed just because they were related, but that got our foot in the door to have a hearing on the bill, which allowed us to make the case. So you just, you never know what is going to influence a legislator to act, whether it's a personal relationship with someone, their personal experience, their, their interest in the issue. You just have no idea. And the only way you're going to get that idea is if you can have someone at the Capitol helping you understand it. The power of relationships, perseverance, patience, hard work, and devotion to making things better is evident in Valerie's philosophy and her hard work. It's important to have people like her working with and for us to make a better future. Thanks for listening. This is Jane Sigford signing off. If you have comments for me, my email is jlsigford at comcast.net. I'll leave you with words from Winston Churchill. Politics is not a game, but a serious business. Thank you for listening.